Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Tonight's Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 22. I will be reading verses 1 through 21. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Tonight we want to look to God's word before we come to the table. And over the past six weeks through this time of Lent services, we have been looking at Old Testament passages that foreshadowed or looked ahead to the cross of Jesus Christ. And tonight I want to 
bring that series to a close by uh, looking at a passage that Jesus himself quoted as he hung there on the cross, and that would be Psalm chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open it uh, to Psalm 22. We read the first uh, little over half of Psalm 22 in our Old Testament reading, uh, but I'd like to finish reading the remaining portion of the psalm uh, now, beginning in verse 22. So follow along as we read the remainder of Psalm 22, beginning in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who hear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is God's word. Father, I pray that you would be with us as we consider your words tonight. Draw us to Christ, I pray. In his name, amen. I would hazard a guess that for most Christians, Psalm 22 probably lies a bit in the shadow of its next door neighbor, Psalm 23. Who has not heard the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And those words sure seem a lot more encouraging, don't they, than my strength is dried up like a potsherd, or I cry out to God by day, but you do not answer. So perhaps it's not surprising that Psalm 23 is so well beloved. And yet, present popularity aside, New Testament authors found Psalm 22 to be uniquely significant. In fact, If I'm counting correctly, more verses from Psalm 22 are either quoted or referred directly to than in any other single chapter of the Old Testament. Because in these verses, we find Christ so clearly portrayed. Now, the main point of this psalm is is really quite straightforward. God's king is forsaken in suffering, but then he is saved in such a way that leads the entire earth to turn to the Lord. I want to look at two halves of this, because in fact, if you notice when we read, we read one half of the psalm earlier and then another half later, and if you didn't know that they were under the same title, you probably wouldn't have known they were the same psalm. The first half focused on suffering and the forsaken agony of Christ. The second was a joyful praise to the saving God. These two are in one psalm, and so I want to look at both portions. But first, before we do, we need to consider for just a second what this psalm is. 
If you're a user of social media, you might know how people take to Instagram or Facebook, and instead of trying to describe how they're feeling, they will quote a poem or a hymn or, or a song to try to communicate what they're feeling. And, and you learn a lot about what they're thinking or, or how they're feeling if you read, to be or not to be, that is the question. Or, or if you read on their page, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Or if their page pops up and it says, baby, I just want to shake, 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 I shake it off. You know, what they, what they say uh, communicates a lot, and sometimes someone else's words just express it best. But the problem is, is that sometimes people look at Jesus on the cross in a similar way. There's been a move in recent decades to assume that every psalm had to be completely understandable in David's life, and that in God's providence, many of the words just happened to apply to Jesus as well. And so Jesus is on the cross sort of quoting David's experience and saying, well, remember David's experience, that's kind of what I'm experiencing too. That's probably the most common way of looking at this psalm. The problem is that's not how the apostles in the New Testament understood David or the psalms. In Acts chapter 2, Peter refers to a couple of different psalms, and he points out that what's described in the psalms didn't happen to David at all. He said they don't match David's life, but they do match Jesus' life. And that's true of this psalm as well. At no point could it be said that David suffered to the point of death such that his hands and feet were pierced. And at no point could it be said that God's deliverance of David was so great that it led to all the ends of the earth turning back to the Lord. And the reason, Peter says, that these psalms don't seem to match David's life is because David was actually a prophet who was speaking by the Holy Spirit about the life of Jesus. The author of Hebrews goes even further in Hebrews 2.12. He quotes Psalm 22. He quotes this psalm. And in verse 22, when the psalm says, I will tell of your name to my brothers, the author of Hebrews says the I speaking there is Jesus. And so the apostles seem to look at the Psalms and say, no, these are a prophecy. They're looking ahead to Christ. This is about Christ. And, and that, I believe, is the best way to understand this Psalm. It's a Psalm of David. It's written against the backdrop of his suffering, surely. But it is a Psalm of prophecy that is preeminently about Christ. And so as we look to this Psalm, we want to look at it in detail as a Psalm that foreshadows and speaks about Christ. So with that said, let's look at the psalm's description of forsaken suffering first. Verses 1 and 2 open with the cry of the sufferer who groans in his pain, and yet he hears no answer from God. These two verses make it clear that while the pain and betrayal that are going to be described later in this psalm are significant, it is the silence and the, the distance of God the sense of being forsaken by his God that is most painful. You know, David actually uses words like this, language like this throughout the, the Psalms, not to express a loss of faith in God. These, these, this cry should not be taken as a loss of faith in God, but to describe what one commentator calls a cry of disorientation as God's protective presence is withdrawn and suffering is allowed in the life of his king. 
These words, like those of Job, give language to many who face the pain and and the grief of, of suffering. They feel the silence of God while they wait for the day of the Lord. But of course, for Christ, this isn't just a a feeling. This is also a reality. As he experienced the face of God turned against him on the cross as he suffered the just punishment for our sin. But having begun with the, the loneliness of crying out to God by day and by night and hearing no answer in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist goes on to describe more details of his suffering in verses 6 to 8. There he describes his betrayal. You see the wording there. He is scorned by mankind. He's despised by the people around him. Those who see him mock him. And they don't just mock him for his foolishness, They mock him for claiming to trust God while God is letting him suffer. You see the words there? They say, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. In other words, what the scoffers seem to be suggesting here is that if the sufferer were really righteous, if he were really in God's favor the way he claims to be, then God would rescue him. But God is not rescuing him. And so they mock him for the situation he finds himself in. It's the same fallacy of Job's friends. Only now they're not the words of miserable comforters. They're the words of his enemies. And they're gleefully shouting them while they look at his suffering. Well, the mockery in verses 6 to 8 turns to outright violence in verses 12 to 18. Now those who were wagging their heads at him encircle him. And attack him like bulls and roaring lions. He is poured out like water. His strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaws in thirst. And he is laid to the dust of death. This is language of dying. In fact, it's not just language of dying. Words of execution are used. They have pierced me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. And not only that, but their hardened hearts watch his death while they play a game of dice for his clothes. They cost lot for his clothing. I think if we reflect on these verses, it's hard to imagine a more thorough expression of suffering than these verses give us. Forsaken by God, mocked by man, attacked and killed, gambled over by those who hate him. But of course, this is exactly what Jesus faced on the cross, isn't it? We read it in our New Testament reading tonight from Matthew 27. Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Christ experienced as he received the just wrath of the Father that we deserved as he hung there in our place. Jesus was mocked in the very words of this psalm. We read it in Matthew 27 as the scribes and the Pharisees said, He trusts in God, let God deliver him because he claimed he was the son of God. I quote Psalm 22. He hung there in thirst. He was mocked, hated, spit upon. The Roman soldiers pierced his hands and his feet as they nailed him to the cross and the soldiers cast lots for his clothing. Work down through this psalm and Jesus fulfills each verse of suffering here. In other words, 1,000 years before, David wrote this psalm of suffering and lament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And in it, we find a thorough prophetic description of the suffering of our Savior 
as he hung on the cross for us. Well, that's the first half of the psalm that looks to Christ. But again, even though this is some of the most deep description of agony we have in the scriptures, this is not a despairing psalm. The greatest cry of agony begins a psalm that ends with a ringing declaration of hope. And so I want to turn next to look at the Lord's answer to this cry of agony. I want you to note, first of all, that the three paragraphs that describe Jesus' suffering, we just looked at them, verses 1 and 2, verses 6 to 8, verses 12 to 18, three paragraphs describing suffering, are interspersed with three paragraphs describing a reason for hope in God. In verses 3 to 5, the psalmist considers the proven character of God in the history of Israel. The Lord has been enthroned on the praises of his people. He is the holy or perfect one. David's fathers trusted in the Lord and the Lord delivered them. They were rescued and they were not put to shame. This is who God has shown himself to be. His character and his faithfulness have been vindicated in the past. And if his character and faithfulness have been vindicated in the past, that is a good reason to trust him in the present, even in the midst of suffering. That's the first reason this psalm gives for trusting the Lord. But then then in verses 9 through 11, we get another reason. In verses 9 through 11, the psalmist puts things more personally. As one commentator writes, God is no casual acquaintance, no perfunctory help. He has offered his personal, lifelong care. These words describe how God took the psalmist the writer from the womb. God has been his trust and his God from the day that he was born. And so here the psalmist offers this beautiful expression of the sovereign care of God and his faithfulness from birth until now. I think many of us could echo that testimony as we look back and see God's faithfulness and his care for us through our lives. And so that's a second reason, even in the midst of pain and grief, that we can trust God because of his care for us from the day we were born. But then third, in verses 19 to 21, the psalmist looks to God and claims that he is the only one who can help and he cries to him in prayer. O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword. In this stanza, it becomes clear again that the cry of being forsaken by God early in, in this psalm was not a statement of doubt or unbelief, but a confession of the experience he was facing at that moment. But it's clear his faith remains in the Lord, for he returns to declaring, God is my only hope. Lord, rescue me and deliver me. And so do you notice how these 21 verses create a dialogue in suffering in which we read the description of suffering and then a reason to hope in God? Then a description of suffering and another reason to hope in God. A description of suffering and another reason to hope in God. God's past proven faithfulness to his people, his personal care through our own lives, leads us to call on him as the only one who can help. And that's the dialogue of the psalm. And I I would just pause and encourage us as fellow believers, this is our pattern for how we look to the Lord in suffering You know, in this world, we will face trouble. I don't need to tell any of us that because we've all experienced it. You will experience suffering, grief and loss, 
pain and agony, longings that go unfulfilled. You will face others who are difficult or hurtful. You may even face mockery or betrayal. And those times are some of the most difficult to know how to turn to the Lord in prayer when we're in the midst of deep suffering. But this psalm gives us the pattern. In the midst of that suffering, look to the character of God and the way he has preserved his people through centuries. Look to the faithfulness of God in your own life and how he has preserved you. And then cry out to him in prayer for deliverance. And once you have done that, then wait. Wait on the Lord. His rescue may come quickly. His rescue may come after three days in the tomb. His rescue may seem to delay while you suffer, but the character of God is proven. He has demonstrated that he is a God who delivers. So look to him and cry out to him and trust his answer in the right time. That's the pattern we read. It's a pattern about Christ in this psalm, and it's a pattern for us. But the question is, okay, that's all well and good, you say, Chris. That's a nice pattern. But did it work? That's the question we often want to know. Did God answer? The psalmist began by declaring that God had forsaken him, but then he cries out for God to deliver him. Did he? And the answer in the psalm is a resounding yes. I should note, as you're reading the psalm, there's some debate between commentators over whether God answers in verse 21 or verse 22. It doesn't really matter, of course, for our theology or understanding, but just so you know, the last line of verse 21, your ESV says, you have rescued me. And that may be the declaration of God's answer. However, that's a debated translation. It may be a final cry, rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's difficult to know which the Hebrew is. I tend to think that it is a final prayer, rescue me from the horns of the wild oxen. But again, it doesn't matter in the theology of this psalm because God's answer is clearly described in the verses that follow, verses 22 to 24. For in these verses, we learn that the king's God has not forsaken him. We read, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. And verse 26 adds, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Because God is a God who answers. His character is proven once again. And so if we want to ask the question, what is this God like, the God of this psalm? He is the one who does not despise the afflicted. He is the one who does not hide his face. He is the one who hears when we cry and he answers. In response, the psalmist declares that he will tell of God's name to his brothers. In the midst of the congregation, he will praise the Lord and perform his vows. In verse 23, the psalmist invites all Israel to glorify God and stand in awe of him and praise him for his deliverance. At first, at first glance, it might seem a, a bit odd to think that all Israel would be invited to stand in awe of God and praise him for delivering the psalmist, but it's not odd at all because this is God's king we're talking about, the God-appointed representative of his people. And of course, the author of Hebrews reminds us that these are the words of Jesus speaking. 
That it's Jesus who tells of God's name to his brothers and invites us to fear the Lord and to praise him. And in that context, it makes perfect sense. Christ's deliverance from the cross is a reason for all Israel to rejoice. For their Redeemer has been saved and his deliverance is nothing less than resurrection from the dead and the means of their own salvation. As we keep reading, we find out it's not just all Israel who's going to praise the Lord. Verse 27 says, All the ends of the earth shall remember what God did for his king. And it will lead the whole earth, all the peoples of the earth, to turn to the Lord. All the families of the nation shall worship God for what he has done. And this isn't going to just be a one-time thing, because do you notice how it talks about the generations? It says, Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And so you start to try to map out the praises that are going to rebound to God because of his rescue of this king. And you find that it's to all Israel, then to all the ends of the earth, and then to all the generations after him. And you get this comprehensive worship and turning to the Lord because of what God will do to rescue this forsaken king. And isn't that exactly what we have on the cross of Jesus Christ? An indication that this psalm is not just about David. Because all the earth did not turn to the Lord in the life of David. Nothing about David fulfills this statement. But it sure matches what Christ has done. It sure matches what God has done in bringing his suffering king back from the dead so that worldwide families of the earth, generation after the generation, might turn to the Lord. And as we read these verses, we begin to realize that you and I and every person around us who have put our faith in Jesus are the recipients of this promise and the heirs of these verses. Well, I want to step back for just a minute before we come to the Lord's table. What do we have here in this psalm tonight? This psalm, perhaps more than any other passage in Scripture, captures for us the extent of Jesus' sufferings. It captures his mocked, scorned, despised hours before the guards and the people and the religious leaders. It captures his loneliness of being surrounded on all sides by enemies. It captures the physical pain of having his hands and his feet pierced. It captures the shame of having his enemies watch him and gamble for his clothing. And of course, in the opening words, it captures the despair of crying out to his heavenly father and hearing no reply. But this psalm isn't a meditation on Christ's suffering just for the sake of dwelling on the grisly details. Sometimes... I think Christians get a little distracted when it comes to to Easter by wanting to try to capture this thorough picture of every detail of Christ's physical suffering. But that's not the intent of this psalm. It's not to be just this extended, uh, uh, R-rated, you know, jump into the, the mire. I think if I can suggest, there are two significant reasons for this extended meditation on Christ's suffering. The first is this. This psalm reminds us of what we deserve. Right from verse 1, we deserve to be forsaken by God. We deserve to cry to Him and hear no answer. We deserve to be despised 
and ashamed in his sight for rejecting our gracious creator. We deserve to be pierced for our transgressions. Here in these details, we find out how much Christ has taken upon himself for our sake. We begin to catch a glimpse of all that Christ has redeemed us from and the lengths that he went to redeem us and accomplish our salvation. And so as we come to this table here tonight, which represents that pierced body and that shed blood, may the sufferings of Christ that we have read about in this psalm again enable us to begin to grasp how much we deserved the wrath of God and how much Christ has rescued us from. I think that's the first thing we learn from this psalm. But the second is this. By describing Christ's sufferings, this psalm magnifies the glory of Christ. When we turn to the New Testament, we find something very interesting. We begin to notice that suffering wasn't just something Jesus went through in order to achieve salvation and then forgot about. The glory of Jesus includes his suffering. It would be, maybe, maybe it would be something like a marathon runner who's training for a, for a marathon. But during his training, he trips and breaks his leg. But then that runner, he, he puts the cast on and he, he heals from the cast. And then he goes through physical therapy and spends months of agony working back to the point where he can run that marathon and not just run it, but win it. And when he wins that marathon, maybe right next to the trophy for the marathon, he's going to put the cast to remember that the victory wasn't just any old victory. The pain he went through and what he endured was part of the glory of what he accomplished. Well, maybe in a tiny way, we can consider the way the New Testament holds up Christ as the crucified and suffered one. Do you remember in Revelation chapter 5 when the elders and the, and the creatures are gathered around the throne room to give glory to God and to the Lamb? And do you remember at that most glorious scene when, when, when Christ is exalted in the, that glorious state, how is he described? Well, the four living creatures see the lamb standing and they bow down with the elders and they sing, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And John, as he's looking there, says, I saw a lamb like one who had been slain. In other words, his suffering what he went through for our sake is part of the glory and the reason for his worship. The songs of his worship for all of the ages are going to be motivated in many ways by the memory of his blood shed to redeem his people and what he did to accomplish that salvation. So on this, this Thursday night as we gather around this table, this supper that Jesus instituted for us, and while we remember the words of this psalm, May we look at the body that was broken for us and the blood shed for us. And may that increase the strength of our praise and the wonder that we feel at the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, a thousand years before you brought your promises to fruition, you spoke through the Holy Spirit by your servant David. And you described what Christ would go through but you told us already ahead of time 
that the death and the, the pierced suffering he would experience were not an end, but that you would rescue him and deliver him in such a way that it would accomplish all of your promises of salvation to the ends of the earth. What a blessing and a promise this psalm is. And may it stir our hearts in worship as we gather around this table for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.